KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a journey through computation, data analysis, and real-world applications. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu. The death toll from Omicron is increasing in San Diego. I think they are pretty confident that we've seen the height of infection in the Omicron wave thus far. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heineman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Why a single-payer health plan failed again in Sacramento. There are political fears related to elections and whether people might get voted out of office for supporting something like this. Sheriff Bill Gore retires with a mixed legacy in San Diego, and films that focus on struggle and triumph mark this year's Human Rights Watch Film Festival. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Many health experts believe the Omicron surge has peaked in San Diego. New case numbers, while still disturbingly high, seem to be trending downward. But even though the latest coronavirus surge may be receding, it's leaving a deadly legacy. 113 deaths are reported in the county's most recent weekly COVID-19 update. Although the highly contagious Omicron variant is responsible for breakthrough cases in San Diego, health officials say an analysis of recent deaths from COVID still show vaccination and booster shots are the best defense. Joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune health reporter Paul Sisson. Paul, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Is the number of deaths reported this week significantly higher than what we've seen here in San Diego? It's trending up a bit. You know, we had 113 in the last uh, week that are in this report that comes out every Wednesday. Uh, I look back the week before that, it was 69, then 24 the week before that, and 34 the week before that. So it's trending upward. It really isn't quite as high, uh, isn't nearly as high as we saw last year when coronavirus was really causing a lot more severe lung problems. I actually did a little bit of analysis of uh, how many people had died each day. And uh, it looks like the record for the whole pandemic, which the county just confirmed for me this morning, was January 15th of 2021 when 58 people died on a single day. So uh, the the highest we've seen this winter has been January 10th when we saw 17. So that's still a lot of people and it's still terrible, but it doesn't yet appear to have uh, been quite as severe as as we saw last winter. And and that's probably down to to a virus that doesn't 
produce as severe lung problems as before. I think it's important also to note that the vote is still out on that. We still have over 1,300 people in our local hospitals who have tested positive for uh, for coronavirus and, and are fighting COVID-19 as we speak, you know, and people will often fight for weeks in hospitals. So we we don't really know the whole pattern yet. It takes weeks for uh, for them to confirm these deaths and report them to the public. Yeah, why does it take weeks to report the deaths from COVID? You know, that's a, it's a bit of a mystery to me. Uh, you know, what I've been told, and, and you know, I've asked the folks who run the, the vital records in this town over and over again exactly what the delays are, and they generally talk about processing delays. You know, it might take time for a, a hospital or nursing home where a pers- person dies to uh, report that information to the county government. Uh, and then the county government has an entire verification process uh, that they do uh, where they look at health records and, and other things. And, and I'm, I'm a little cloudy on exactly all the tiny details of that process, but I guess sometimes it can just take them a while to uh, decide for sure whether or not they want to put any given death on, on the list of those that they consider to be COVID-related. Now, we usually hear that most of the people who get seriously ill or die from COVID are over 65 with underlying conditions. Is that the case in this most recent report, too? Yeah, absolutely. I, I went through and uh, and looked at these 113 deaths, and uh, the average age there is 74. All but two of these uh, latest 113 had other underlying health problems present uh, besides COVID. Tragically, we had two on the list, though, uh, one who was 28 and one who was 31, both who had no other underlying problems, uh, according to the, the county's list anyway. So what about the vaccination status of people who recently died from COVID? Were they vaccinated? Sadly, we do not get granular information from the county on each person who died and whether or not they were vaccinated. You know, what we do know is that in general, 46 of these 113 who died and were announced last week were fully vaccinated. 67 were not. We don't know how many of those exactly uh, were boosted although the county's data does indicate that there have just been two deaths in the past month of people who were boosted. Well, the recommendation that a booster is the still the best protection for a fully vaccinated person, that's apparently true across the nation as well. Here's CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Wilensky. Here's what she had to say about that yesterday. Unvaccinated individuals were 97 times more likely to die compared to those who were boosted. Now, Paul, you spoke with Dr. Rodney Hood, who told you he thinks the message about vaccinations and boosters is getting through to more people. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Dr. Hood um, is a a very well-known physician uh, in many parts of San Diego, especially uh, serving San Diego's Black community which has, uh, you know, throughout the pandemic and through this last year, when the vaccine has been available, it has been uh, more reluctant to get vaccinated. I think it's fair to say that's what the numbers show compared to the population as a whole. People uh, who are African-Americans have just reached a 50% vaccination rate and the county's overall vaccination rate is 80%. So, uh, you know, it's uh, it's pretty clear that, that there has been some reluctance there. Uh, but Dr. Hood definitely indicated that he's seeing more interest uh, as more people in the community have direct experience uh, with this virus. Uh, people, you know, a lot of times maybe not hospitalized, but are still ending up uh, with a, you know, severe case convalescing at home. And, uh, 
you know, what he said is, you know, if you know somebody, you know, who's important in your life who has recently gotten sick, you're just significantly more likely to consider vaccination if you're not already vaccinated. Is the county confident that the number of COVID cases is going down in San Diego? I think they are. I think if you look uh, at the cases by the dates that people got sick, rather than by the uh, dates that those cases were announced to the public, uh, you can see a pretty solid trend. You know, it looks like we we pretty definitely peaked in uh, mid to uh, early January. And, you know, I think there was one day in there where we had 16,000 positive cases in a single day. I think the caveat there, as they indicated in their press release yesterday, has to do with all the um, home tests that are, that are occurring. Those results are not reported uh, to the epidemiology department, so they don't quite have a handle on, on how many home tests are coming positive and yet not being communicated uh, widely. Uh, but I think overall the trend, you know, we were we were seeing uh, numbers uh, in the five digits for quite a while in mid-January. In the last few days, uh, the numbers have been under 3,000. I think they are pretty confident that we've seen the height of infection in, in the Omicron wave thus far. I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune health reporter Paul Sisson. Paul, thank you very much. Thank you. An effort to enact a single-payer health care system in California fizzled out in the state assembly this week despite lobbying from progressive activists. The failure to deliver on Assembly Bill 1400 highlights a lack of political will in getting a government-run health care system off the ground, despite being a long-standing stated goal of the Democratic Party. Joining me now with more is CalMatters reporter Alexi Kosef. Alexi, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. So can you start by giving us some background on this bill? Assembly Bill 1400 has been working its way through the legislature for a year now. It was introduced last year and went nowhere. And in the meantime, supporters have been working, trying to come up with details that could really convince people that this is finally the time that a single payer healthcare bill could make it through the legislature and work in California. It's something that has been a priority for some members of the Democratic Party for decades, and they really see California as the place to make it happen. It's supposed to be this big liberal environment where you can make these, you know, experiments with policy and be out ahead of the country. And so in January, they came back with this proposal of how to pay for it with a series of taxes on businesses and high earning households. And they were hoping that they could push it through and really get the conversation rolling again in California. But as we saw this week, there just was not the political will once again to get this bill moving. And the bill's author, Assemblymember Ash Cholera, failed to gain adequate support for the measure. Should that come as a surprise? Yes and no. People were hoping that this time might be different because Ash Cholera had really put in the work to try and come up with more of a proposal. It was it was still needing a lot more work, but there was a real solid foundation there. And instead, he wasn't able to get enough votes that he even felt comfortable bringing it up on the floor. Uh, he told supporters later that he was likely short by double digit votes maybe 10 or more, and he needed 41. So that's pretty substantial 
you know, shortfall. And he didn't want to bring it up at all because he thought that having it flame out and do so poorly in front of everybody would actually set back the effort. Well, now that this effort has been effectively killed for another year, is there a path forward for it in the future? That is the biggest question. You have a governor who has said he supports single payer and wants to move the state toward that, but never came out and spoke in support of Assembly Bill 1400. You have a Democratic Party that has said in its platform for many, many years that it supports single payer, but you can't get all of the Democrats who control the legislature to even support a bill. And you continue to have a lot of really intense lobbying on all sides. I mean, one of the reasons this bill wasn't able to move forward last year or this year is that there was a very intense campaign from the business community, health insurance companies, hospitals, doctors, a lot of different kinds of groups that have a financial stake and an interest in whatever the healthcare system looks like in California, who do not want this change to happen. And there are political fears related to elections and whether people might get voted out of office for supporting something like this. So there are a lot of factors at play. There are a lot of things that need to be sorted out and worked through and strategies that need to change for future efforts to work out differently for supporters. And as you mentioned, despite being a longtime priority of Democrats, you know, there doesn't seem to be a lot of political will to pass an initiative of this kind. I mean, why is that? There seems to be plenty of support for this among the voter base. I I think, you know, the idea of single payer and the reality of it, there's sometimes a gap and that's hard to close, um, both in the minds of politicians and in the minds of voters, in particular, the fear over backlash of the need to raise taxes to pay for a system like this, even if it might cost less in the long run because you don't have private health insurance, you know, making that case to voters could be difficult. And a lot of politicians are scared that this might get them voted out of office and they don't want to take that risk. Um, There are, you know, a lot of complicated factors at play and, You know, having a governor who was more out in front of this might also help shift the landscape toward this happening in the future. But Governor Gavin Newsom, who was out there early in his uh, 2018 election campaign on the record supporting single payer, just has not put in a lot of political capital or work over the years since he was elected to build up that support and lay the groundwork in Sacramento for that to happen either. You talked about opposition to this bill. Uh, The California Chamber of Commerce actually labeled Assembly Bill 1400 as a job killer. Can you tell us more about that? The job killer label is not necessarily based on any particular research or analysis that would indicate it kills jobs. It's more of a a labeling, a flashy way of branding the bills that the uh, California Chamber of Commerce uh, most wants to kill that are their priority to defeat. And, um, you know, there's a lot of concern among the business community about the prospect of raising additional taxes upon them and that they would bear the brunt of having to pay for a system like this. And so that's where there's this opposition that, um, you know, that's what really drives this intense opposition to a system like this. You also have healthcare companies that would 
essentially be pushed out of California that would no longer be able to operate because it's largely a government-run taxpayer-funded system under single payer. And so they have business uh, stakes in this too and are fighting to essentially keep their place in the California economy. And a lot of them give money to lawmakers, have close relationships with lawmakers, and their voices are very influential at the Capitol. So what's been the response from supporters of the measure to the recent news? There was a very intense backlash to its defeat. And you'd be surprised some of the ways that came out because a lot of it was directed at Assemblyman Kalra. And they were very angry at him for not even taking the bill up for a vote. They wanted it on the record. They wanted to know who supported it and who didn't, because these progressive activists want to go out and defeat the lawmakers who aren't on board with their cause and get people elected who are supportive of single payer. So they had a very emotional call on Zoom on Monday night after the vote. It went on for several hours and there were people, activists on that call who were just lambasting Assemblyman Kara, telling him he had lost their trust, he had betrayed them. And it really indicates this rift in strategy and approach and also um, just the path forward. Assemblyman Kara has said that he still wants to carry this bill next year if they'll let him, but um, they might not even trust him enough anymore to ask him to be the legislative author of a single-payer bill. Um, There was also the California Nurses Association, the main sponsor of the legislation, um, came out very hard against Assemblyman Kalra, essentially accused him of, of giving up on Californians. Uh, by not taking this bill up for a vote. And, you know, it just shows that there's these really intense rifts that people on the same side of this issue are going to have to mend to move forward. I've been speaking with Cal Matters reporter Alexi Kossif. Alexi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. Today is San Diego County Sheriff Bill Gore's last day on the job. The three-time elected 74-year-old is leaving after spending more than half a century in law enforcement. KPBS Amitha Sharma looks at the ups and downs of Gore's tenure. Bill Gore took office in early 2011 after serving as interim sheriff for 18 months. It was a rough and painful time. The swine flu hit county jails and two teenage girls, Amber Dubois and Chelsea King, were murdered within 13 months of each other. I don't think the men and women of the San Diego Sheriff's Department could have performed any better than they did during this last 18 months. It's just been incredible. Before joining the Sheriff's Department, Gore spent 30 years working for the FBI. He was special agent in charge for the San Diego office on 9-11. Some say that job taught him the importance of collaboration. And so we're all working together and not in silos. He had the respect of every police chief, 
and certainly the respect of the DA's office. San Diego County District Attorney Summer Stephan lauds Gore for co-creating the San Diego Human Trafficking Task Force and forming special units for sex crimes and cold cases. She says she and Gore were instrumental in pushing for special mental health crisis stabilization units. He deserves credit for a lot of positive and a lot of why this area is looked at as a really great symbol for professional policing. I think he would own all of those positives and, you know, would also take responsibility for the things that are negative. Many say the negatives outnumbered the positives during Gore's tenure. During his first year in office, the Sheriff's Department faced intense scrutiny for how it handled the case of Rebecca Zahau. In July of 2011, Zahau was found hanging in a Coronado mansion. And though she had been bound and gagged, Sheriff's Department investigators concluded she had died by suicide. Zahau's family believed she was murdered by her boyfriend's brother, Adam Shacknai. A civil jury agreed and found Shacknai liable for Zahau's death. In the years that followed, Gore continued to face accusations that he had rushed to judgment. He would not be interviewed for this story, but in 2018, he told a reporter that the suicide ruling followed a careful investigation. We didn't start off saying, well, this is suicide, and then gather information and facts to prove that it was a suicide. We kept an open mind until the last piece of evidence, forensic evidence, was, was examined. In 2017, Gore faced the public's ire for the conduct of his deputies. More than a dozen local women accused Deputy Richard Fisher of sexual assault and misconduct. He just scared me so bad that I would never let an officer in my house again. Many of the women blamed Gore for not firing Fisher quickly enough. Gore disagreed. When the second allegation came in, he was removed from the field. And shortly after more victims came forward, we put him on administrative leave out of the office. Later that year, Gore again came under fire for failing to discipline Deputy Christopher Villanueva, who shot and killed Jonathan Coronel while trying to serve a search warrant. It was Villanueva's second fatal shooting in 10 months. These gentlemen were unarmed. They may have been gang affiliated, but that was splashed all over the news to defame and re-traumatize the family and criminalize the individual. Yusuf Miller is with the Racial Justice Coalition. He described Gore as a skilled politician. Some complaints were backed up by data. A 2021 study by the Center for Policing Equity found that San Diego Sheriff's deputies were four times as likely to use force against black people than whites. Black pedestrians were also stopped three and a half times more frequently. Deaths in sheriff-operated county jails have also dogged Gore. A 2019 investigation by the San Diego Union-Tribune showed the department had the highest death rate of California's largest counties. Gore told KPBS he disagreed with the methodology used by the paper. Gore chose to retire earlier than expected to care for his ailing wife, Natalie. He called her his staunchest supporter at his last swearing-in. Amitha Sharma, KPBS News. And on Sheriff Bill Gore's last day in office, the state decided to release the findings of an audit on San Diego County jail deaths. The state found that the sheriff's department failed to prevent and respond to the deaths of people in its custody. 
For decades, it stood as an eyesore and a landmark in Hillcrest. Now it's gone. The dilapidated Pernicano's restaurant building, closed and deteriorating since the 1980s, has been demolished. In its place, an ambitious multi-purpose development will provide new housing, hotel rooms, and retail space to the community. The legend of Pernicano's and why it stayed in dilapidated limbo for so long has many twists and turns. Joining me to explain is San Diego Union Tribune reporter Jennifer Van Grove. And Jennifer, welcome. Thanks for having me. That Pernicano sign with the broken Casa de Bafi sign right next to it has been a constant for years on 6th Avenue near University. And they both used to be restaurants, right? That's that's right. So Pernicano's opened in 1946 and then uh, Casa de Bafi in 1961. Tell us about Pernicano's in its heyday. So it was, according to um, Gary Pernicano, who's the son of George Pernicano, it was kind of the it spot. Um, so George moved out here from Detroit. He was a former serviceman. He brought all 10 of his brothers um, out to San Diego, and uh, they opened Pernicano's as what... what um, Gary describes the first pizza house in in Southern California. They opened it, and George actually became a interesting figure in in Chargers lore. So he he, according to his son, convinced Baron Hilton to move the team down here, and he had a very small ownership stake, five percent. That's the family still holds a three percent stake today. But so that relationship and others' relationships made it so that George was kind of a, a central figure in San Diego and in Hollywood circles. There, you know, were lots of celebrities that came. And, you know, apparently, according to a lot of the stories that that our paper has from, from back in the day, um, you know, the food was also pretty good, too. <laughs> you spoke with Pernicano's son, Gary, and he remembered those days. Yeah, so he says he grew up there, right? So he said he was thrown, not thrown, but he started, you know, thrown into the kitchen essentially at five and he started washing dishes. He started cooking at 12. He spent most of his days there. So even after school, he would go to the restaurant. Um, And so it was really his his home um, and it became a, you know, popular place for him. And that's, you know, where he says he got to interact with a ton of celebrities, you know, from everyone from Jane Mansfield and Lucille Ball to Dean Martin. Um, and he got to meet, of course, a lot of the, the Chargers players um, over the years. Why did the restaurant go out of business? You know, I don't know for sure. But Gary's version of events is that George, his dad, um, closed the restaurant to take care of his mother, who was very sick. And so that became the family's priority. Uh, I don't know that the family ever really wanted the restaurants to be closed permanently. So George closed um, Pernicano's and Casa de Bafi both in the early 80s, but he reopened Pernicano's on a very limited basis in 85. And I and the story gets a little convoluted from there based on, you know, what George has said in other media reports. But what I believe happened is because it was just such a temporary schedule and he had a liquor license that he had an issue with with the liquor board, um, which, you know, I guess limited or was requiring him to be open seven days a week. And that just wasn't going to happen. And so 
things just closed and they never opened again. And Gary had said that he had plans to reopen the restaurant, but it was just too cost per prohibited given the state of the um of the restaurant and some vandalism that's taken place over the years and that's kind of where we are today yeah why did it stay empty for so long though according to gary it's because his father just never wanted to part with it um there were just so many memories attached to it uh and it was just a very personal um family oriented place that they they just didn't want to let go on and and as i had said before i think that there were still intentions in the family to revive it to make it into you know the next great um pizza house in san diego and those kind of just fell apart those uh, dreams fell apart because of the cost to do it and then according to gary um you know they had to to sell the property to pay for George's estate taxes. And so that kind of uh, was the the um, the thing that kind of changed the course of what was going to happen. So who bought it and what are they doing with the property? So a developer named Carmel Partners, and um, they're based out of San Francisco and they do multifamily housing. They bought it in 2019. Uh, they bought it for $8.4 million, um, and the city has said that they are proposing a mixed-use project that would have 77 um, multifamily units and 74 hotel rooms with, there would be some ground floor retail and restaurant space as well, and that would be on the Fifth Avenue side. And the permits also indicate that, um, and they've, they've been created but not approved, uh, they indicate that it would be an eight-story building with two levels of underground parking. Aren't there still Pernicano restaurants in the county? There are. There are two. So there's one on Mercy Road and there's one in El Cajon. Um, Gary is the owner-operator of, of the location in El Cajon. Um, I believe he, he lives out in that area. And so the name lives on. I've been speaking with San Diego Union Tribune reporter Jennifer Van Grove, and thank you so much. Thanks, Maureen. A recent U.S. Census survey shows that during the last pandemic year, Black parents moved their children to homeschooling at a rate of five times higher than previous years. And it's not all due to the pandemic. Joining me to explore why Black parents are opting to homeschool their children is Khadija Ali Coleman, Director of Black Family Homeschool Educators and Scholars, and also co-author of the recently released book, Homeschooling Black Children in the U.S., Theory, Practice, and Popular Culture. Khadija, welcome. Thank you for having me. Your book outlines how systemic racism and other factors influence the decision of Black families to homeschool. Talk a bit about that. I mean, why are so many Black parents looking to homeschool their children? Black families who homeschool are not a monolith. But although we are not a monolith, there are some um, similarities in some of the stories that we share in terms of why homeschooling was a choice. Um, The reality is that for the most part, many people who are choosing homeschooling as a practice, many black families um, believe that the current um, schooling system, and I'll refer to traditional school spaces, um, such as public, private, and charter schools as traditional um, school spaces, tend to have increasingly become 
racialized, meaning everything from consequences being more punitive when looking at black children compared to the consequences for white children, suspensions, expulsions, to even the curriculum normalizing and centering experiences that aren't necessarily relevant to the historical experiences of black people in this country. For instance, <laughs> parents remarked in a group that we have on Facebook that one parent in particular, their breaking point was during an assignment that they that their child had, noticing that the history of black people in this country started with enslavement. So homeschooling really allows for the parent to curate the learning experience where it's more inclusive of history that extends outside of our history beginning with slavery. In addition, many parents also found that COVID-19 provided the space to begin homeschooling as schools went virtual, as many parents um, started to work remotely from home and provided an opportunity that didn't exist before COVID-19. In what ways do you see homeschooling providing a safer social environment for Black students? It's not only a practice of education, but it's a a practice of self-discovery. And so the safety that's involved in having space to explore who you are um, and to give space for someone else to have self-discovery without shaming, without punitive consequence, is enriching in ways that are, are often overlooked when we think of education as a practice. You know, we often hear about learning loss and the social issues that stem from virtual learning. Are you seeing any of those same challenges in homeschooling? One of the the things that um, many of the new homeschoolers, and I look at I call look at those who are homeschooling since COVID or because of COVID nineteen, um, many of them new to the practice they're realizing that a lot of the the learning that their children are engaging in does not take place behind a computer screen or while they're sitting at a computer screen or while they're in the house, that they're learning that anything from outdoor play, um, traveling to museums, or just engaging in experiential learning activities that don't necessarily require a lot of the tech that we're used to and that's so integral to our day-to-day that once children um, have the, the ability to really have a, a, a diverse range of experiences and activity, that um, this idea of learning loss um, is replaced with understanding that learning is ongoing, youth development is ongoing. And what kind of academic success are Black students finding while being homeschooled? What the research shows is that proportionate to their population, homeschool students are actually more apt to graduate, to persist, which means to continue through college without stopping and, and, and beginning again, as well as graduating at higher levels than students who were not homeschooled proportionate to their population. And not only do they um, complete college, they're more likely to complete college and graduate, but graduate with higher GPAs. And But many parents and many homeschooling students do not look at success as necessarily comp- um, aspiring to college or completing college. Many homeschooling students are engaged in activities to build entrepreneurial acumen or um, to really be of service to their community. So engaging in preparation um, for different types of work, whether it's um, community service um, or just continuing along the lines of building their skill set as apprentice, 
or um, through trade. And so homeschooling students, homeschooling families have the same wants and needs of, of those families who have children in traditional school spaces in terms of wanting their children to be successful. But what success looks like is very dependent on who the family is. Khadija Ali Coleman is the director of Black Family Homeschool Educators and Scholars, also co-author of Homeschooling Black Children in the U.S., Theory, Practice, and Popular Culture. Khadija, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. KPBS On Demand is supported by under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. The Museum of Photographic Arts in Balboa Park is hosting its 12th annual Human Rights Watch Film Festival now through Tuesday. The event will be virtual this year, featuring five films about issues ranging from foster youth to immigration reform. Besides streaming the films, festival watchers will also get a chance for Q&As with filmmakers. Joining me to talk about the films playing during the week-long Film Fest is the Deputy Director of the Human Rights Watch Film Festival, Jennifer Nedbalski. And Jennifer, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Now, the Human Rights Watch Film Festival typically gathers documentaries from around the world. Has that been more difficult during the pandemic? In terms of human rights, uh, the human rights movement hasn't stopped and neither have the ability for filmmakers to go out and shoot these stories. So it hasn't quite slowed down, thankfully. Is there a theme for this year's film festival selections? You know, this year we are thinking about certainly the human toll of the global pandemic. And many people are feeling a little bit isolated. There's so much going on all at the same time. But this year's festival really lifts up stories of community members, ordinary people all over the world, but definitely in California, where two of our films take place, that are just overcoming the odds, finding support, and taking leadership to take steps in action. Well, the film festival is streaming, it's underway, and the film On the Divide is actually first on the list. Tell us what this film is about. On the Divide is a film that centers the stories of the Latinx community in McAllen, Texas. This is an area where there's about a 250-mile swath of land. However, there's only one remaining abortion clinic. And this is for many people, especially folks living in poverty and with other limited access. Um, This is where they pick up things like birth control. So when abortion clinics are closing in Texas, it really has an impact on every member of this community on whatever side of what they call the divide they stand. Let's hear a clip from the trailer. Two, three years ago, Texas had 41 abortion facilities. On October the 3rd, only seven in the state of Texas could legally perform an abortion. This is a clinic that has been closed down because of the new laws implemented by the state of Texas. The illegal abortions will take place. Women can hemorrhage to death. Why is this your opening movie selection? 
You know, certainly women across the country and families across the country have so much at stake right now. While there's a huge amount of support across the country for women to have the right to choose, um, this film really shows that obviously the question is really complicated, but also there's a lot of common ground to be found. The discussion on abortion isn't always a black and white issue. This film really shows that there's a huge gray area where people, including people of faith, really understand and are empathizing with how difficult these choices are to make and how profound and important it is that women are able to decide what is best for their bodies and families. Another film featured in the Human Rights Watch Film Festival is Possible Selves. What does this movie highlight? So we're thrilled to be hosting the world premiere of this film, Possible Selves, which is the first documentary of its kind to focus on the stories of foster youth telling their own stories. In the United States, it's impossible for foster youth to speak out to the press without approval from a judge. And so this film is really remarkable as it lifts up a lot of organizations and individuals in California that are supporting foster youth as they go ahead and reach their goal of graduating from college. Here's a clip from the film. It's like a foster children as like, you know, damaged goods no one really wanted. And I don't know, once I became one, it's like my whole perspective just shifted you know is that if that's what everyone will think of a foster child then how can they ever see the qualities that they possess how can they ever see that they might be a great dancer or a gifted musician when we see documentaries about foster children it usually focuses on the foster system itself but as you say this film concentrates on the stories of the foster kids themselves how does that change the story that's told you know, it's so important that we're able to hear from the perspectives of foster youth what their lives are like. And this film really, it's its so important for the public to understand that foster youth are in their communities. They're in your kids' schools. They might be your, your kid or the best friend of your child. They're important members of the community. And they're really trying hard to overcome the odds to reach their goals, to be educated in college, to be able to work and support themselves. But the film also focuses on teens that are coming of age and aging out of the foster care system. And we at Human Rights Watch really want the people to understand that watch this film that foster youth need more support. And that can look like becoming a foster parent or just becoming a mentor and an ally to foster youth in your community. Tell us a little about some of the other films being streamed. There's one called Fruits of Labor. That's right. Fruits of Labor tells the story of an incredible young woman who is living outside of Los Angeles. Her story is one that's not unique to many members of the California and San Diego area. As she's in high school, her mother is threatened with deportation. And because of the fear of having her mother taken away, this young teenager ends up having to work multiple jobs to support her siblings and her mother financially. So she's working in the strawberry fields in the morning, going to high school, and then working in a meatpacking plant at night. And the film actually is co-written by Ashley, the film subject, and she'll be part of the Q&A. So we really hope folks get to meet her and hear her story. You know, living in Southern California, we hear an awful lot of stories like that. It's different, though, when you actually see it on the screen, isn't it? Absolutely. And in the film, you're really brought into Ashley's life. And the film really poses the question about what it's like to come of age as a young woman of color, a young working woman of color right now. 
And the festival also presents a story about reclaimed identity in Daughter of a Lost Bird. And let's just hear a little from that movie. When someone says, you're lummy, it's very hard for me. I can't wrap my mind around it. I don't know what that means. Don't be ashamed who you are now. Your ancestors are here. They led you here. Jennifer, tell us about this film. Daughter of a Lost Bird is made by Brooke Pepian Swanee, and it tells the story of a young woman who, as she's about to become a mother herself, realizes that she is actually from a Native background. She was raised by a white mother and family and never knew anything about her Native heritage until she was about to become a mother herself. So the film traces back the origins of the family separations that took place called the Indian Child Welfare Act, which led many families to be separated. And as Kendra goes ahead and learns about her identity, connecting with her culture, she also meets her birth mother, who herself was also separated from her family due to these um, separations in the Native American community. So all of these films in the Human Rights Watch Film Festival are currently streaming. Where can people go to stream the films during the festival? The films are available to stream online at mopa.org slash hrwff. The films will be online from February 2nd all the way through the 8th. And tickets start at just $9 for the individual film, $35 for a whole festival pass. And I do want to mention that we don't want the cost of the ticket to be a barrier. So people can email us at filmticket, F-I-L-M ticket at hrw.org. And we'll go ahead and send you some free codes. Well, I've been speaking with the Deputy Director of the Human Rights Watch Film Festival, Jennifer Nedbalski. Jennifer, thank you very much. Thank you so much. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota. Let's go places.